Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts for today, Courtney Emmerich. And I'm Donnell Wright. Uh, today, uh, today is really actually a special day for me. Uh, we're talking to Mr. Willie Day and uh, Teresa Gaines, but also we're talking to Lester McLean, who happens to be my uncle. So I just want to thank all of you all for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. We wanted to talk with everyone today as a part of Black History Month to get the generational perspective on where we have been as a nation and where we are going. We've hosted several podcasts on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it is important that we continue to have these conversations to gain perspectives so that we can understand the challenges that some of our teammates face day in and day out. We're very excited to speak with each of you today to get your perspective. So let's start with one of our guests that saw the civil rights movement in the 60s firsthand. Lester, can you tell us what you experienced then compared to what is happening today? As far as being a part of the civil rights movement, it is, um, I think I see more people who, who are part of the movement today than what um, I remember seeing growing up. You know, the, I see some diversity in the, in the movement today. When I, say, when I look at the movement of seeing Black Lives Matter, for instance, I see those marches that, that happened last summer. I've never seen it be as diverse. And I think that's one of the biggest differences in enough that I've seen in, in, in that part of the world. I know what you're talking about because even though I'm not uh, as old, being 54 uh, years of age, uh, I've seen some things that have changed over the years too. I know when I was uh, coming up, there was some emphasis on certain things when I was in high school, you know, middle school and all that. And, and, and even in college, you know, I, I went to Tennessee State University and, and it was really weird because what I, what I saw was almost, I don't want to call it a, a reverse type of discrimination or anything like that. But when I went to Tennessee State, this was in 87 when I first started college, the first go around, uh, we had some white students on uh, on the the campus, and some of the <laughs> some of the black students were like, "Why are they here? You know, this is a this is a this is a black college or, or whatever." And one of the things I said to, to the students then, I said, "You know, I said be careful of what you're saying here." I said because there used to be a time where your ancestors, you know, your your grandparents and whatever could not go to what was considered quote unquote white college. So, you know, one of the things that I pointed out is that every every white person doesn't is not born with a silver spoon in their mouth. They're not born rich or, or anything like that. I want to say it's it was weird, but it was just a little bit different for me uh, as far as my experience and then of course I ended up joining the military which we'll talk about that later, but uh, and, and saw some other things. Willie, you're not you're you're a little bit younger than than my uncle Lester and stuff, but you know I know that you've seen some things as well. So why don't you tell us about your experiences and what you've seen? Wow, that's a that's a great question, and uh, thanks for recognizing that I'm a little bit uh, younger than your uncle Lester. I appreciate that. Uh, having said that, though. Uh, I just like to reiterate that I'm a child of the civil rights movement as well, you know, mm -hmm. and I was a little child when all this was going on. I remember vividly, uh, you know, all the, the, the marches. I remember vividly when a key members in our society was assassinated, President Kennedy, his brother Robert, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. I experienced all of that. Uh, growing up during that civil rights movement. I also participated. I grew up in a totally segregated society, totally segregated. When I say segregated, I mean, I recall being in school and I got a project and I went to the library in my little hometown and I was turned away uh, because of the color of my skin. And speaking of school, during the civil rights movement, when they decided to integrate the schools in the in the 70s, and I know I'm dating myself, 
I was going to a segregated school, and I recall, and it was painful, they finally decided to integrate us. So we moved to the white school. I'm like, okay, I'm finally get the opportunity to to uh, engage some white folks. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm finally going to get that opportunity because I hadn't had that opportunity. Unfortunately, when they integrated the schools, all the white kids moved to private schools and left us with a mixed staff and faculty. So again, I was in a segregated school besides the mixed staff and faculty. But what was so, was so painful about that was that they didn't allow us to have any extracurricular activities. We were told that our education level was so low that we couldn't have sports. One of those at band, football. I could have been the next Michael Jackson had I played basketball. Uh, I always wanted to play saxophone, but I feel like that was denied to me. Another painful memory from that was the principal lived on campus with his family in a government-sponsored house. His kids also went to the private school. That was one family. And let me know if I get long-winded, because these bring some painful memories for me. That was one white family that stayed, and then, and they had a daughter and a son. The daughter was in my class. So I finally got a chance to engage with a white person. Uh, and, and, and we were both curious about each other. And so we had a lot of dialogue going on. She came to school three days later and told me that her family was moving out of town. They were being chased out of town by the white community because their father, who happened to be a minister, kept them, kept them in school. So when we talk about subjects like that, just, just be mindful that we have people in the workplace that have experiences like mine. And when we say certain things, it brings up those memories. I remember vividly the first time I was called the N-word, and I really want to say it, uh, but I was ostracized once I uh, presented a speech. I was a guest speaker, and I actually said the word because I wanted the people to feel the impact of that word. And it was on the military information in Germany. I was escorted out to the theater after that speech because I said that word. But anyway, I recall uh, going home. I joined the military like you, Darnell, and I recall coming home from Korea, and this was 1979. And uh, I was hungry, so I picked up a friend of mine whose father happened to be the town cop. Of course, he couldn't arrest white folks or anything like that, only the black. That's why he was put in place. And so uh, we went to this little, I won't call it a restaurant back then. It was the only little place we can get food to eat in Mississippi. We call it a little cafe. So we went there. All the cooks were black, of course. And so traditionally, we would go to the back door. Now, mind you, I had been in the Army five years, and here I'm a sergeant. So I decided I'm bold enough to go through the front door. So I took my friend with me. We walked in, and, and you could hear a pin drop. The black people behind the counter just stared at me. And what I remember vividly about that incident is that my friend that was with me, whose father was a cop, was in there. And he looked at us in shock. And everybody was cool. Of course, nobody came over to serve us. The black waitresses were afraid to come serve us because they feared they was going to be fired. So my friend's father came over, sat down. He said, now, boys, you know you're wrong. You know how things are here. Then he looked at me. My nickname is Butch. And Butch, you in the Army, you should know better. You should know you should go to the back to get service. So what I want you boys to do is get up and just walk out of here nicely, and we'll forget this happened. So we even had a jail in my hometown that they would lock the black folks up in, but they would take the white folks who got in trouble 15 miles up the road. And I could go on and on and on. But I just wanted to share some of my experiences so I could give you a frame of reference. So when I talk about how have I seen changes today, of course, you know, today I can go in any restaurant. Of course, you know, our schools pretty much are, are integrated today. So we have made some changes, some positive changes, but I would just like to say we still have a long way to go. And what hurts me is that, especially when we were doing the project inclusion listening session, all of these things, I guess, were not talked about. The, the hard topics or subjects we didn't discuss because we wanted to remain, remain safe, didn't want to offend anybody, and didn't get out of our comfort zone. 
And as far as I'm concerned, you don't grow until you get out of your comfort zone. So I'll stop there because I could go on and on. Okay. I appreciate that, Willie. Thanks. Now, now, Teresa, now you, you've heard from Uncle Lester and you've heard from Willie. Now, can you share your perspectives uh, with us? Um, well, I was born in the 90s, so my perspective on um, a lot of the civil rights movement and things like that come from people like Willie here, from my mom, Lexi, lived through segregation, went to forced integrated schools, um, endured racism, things I didn't really endure myself. Um, but first, I think, is why I went to a pretty much fully white school for elementary school and middle school, because my mom thought that because of how she grew up, I needed to learn how to code switch. I needed to learn how to um, interact with people that would probably be different than myself as I advanced through my education. So I think the pain and the fear of violence because of race, I didn't, I didn't feel that until um, recently with the Black Lives Matter movement. As I've become more involved, as I've become more of an activist myself, I now can relate to um, those stories that felt like they were so long ago but really weren't that long ago, like seeing people chastising, people that were marching, seeing people scream insults, being scared for your own safety. That was my first time experiencing that living in Minneapolis and going through the social unrest that we went through. So now I feel like my own perspective on black history has changed because I can now, I feel that same, although I wasn't alive during that time, I feel, I feel that struggle that my mom and people like Willie and Mr. McLean, they speak about is because I was able to actually have firsthand experiences with negative interaction with the police officers and things that people talk about that you don't really feel that passion and that pain until you actually go through it. So um, although my experiences don't go far back, I think that my connection to black history has gotten stronger through the last couple of years. May Thanks I make for a sharing, statement? Teresa. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I listen to it and I'm thinking, you know, we remember those things that are so painful and but as we think we've stepped away from that time, we really haven't because sometimes we're getting stabbed with pains that we're not feeling yet. And then when you get to that point said, okay, we need to be able to do this more or that more or be a part of, then you see the resistance to the next thing that you hadn't even thought, you know, should be there. But to keep running into it, I guess that's that word that's called systemic racism. You know that you can't walk in this door to go eat, as you said earlier, and you know these other things are happening. But you think that once you take that down, that the fairness and the equality will exist. But then there's just as many doors still after the left to overcome after you finish those things that are obvious, everything else that's hidden is still there. And it's one step at a time, and no one's in a hurry to, to, to make the change, it seems like. It's a fight that has so many hidden doors that you still have to open in order to get to the promised land. But at the same time, it's something that my mom tried to shelter me from by having me have these other experiences, but she wasn't able to. And I think that's something that we're starting to realize is that no matter what you do, no matter what you go through, you try to protect your children, but you're not able to because as you said, there's so many doors that still exist. Those doors are going to be pushed up against as people try to advance themselves. And I think that maybe for me being sheltered from some of that, did me a disservice in a way um, because I wasn't ready to confront those things that I, would, I had to confront when, pretty much everything fell apart racially here in Minneapolis. As we're talking about generational perspectives, I can't help to think about conversations I've had with my own kids. They, they couldn't believe it. They're like, Mom, you're telling me uh, it took a law for people to be treated with equality? And I said, yep, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And my, my kids just, they couldn't, they couldn't understand it. They, they didn't understand they don't have these generational experiences and perspectives, and the world that they live in is much more diverse now. 
I, I mean, they actually thought that I was lying to them for a minute when I told them, no, you really need to understand. I said, what are they teaching you in school? What kind of historical perspectives uh, have you heard? And, you know, it really, it opened the door for me to have conversations with my kids, for us to be very open about how laws had to be passed in the civil rights movement uh, to make monumental changes in how people were treated to move towards a society of equity and inequality. So Lester, can you talk about, uh, in your experience, how the community response has changed in your lifetime? And do you think that things are getting better? I like to think that uh, things that we're familiar with, if you have the communities, for instance, various communities, people that they become familiar with, I think you feel and see some change, but there's always limitations there. I can use so many examples, but let's, let's just use the educational system as an example. One could take, uh, no, no matter what struggles you have in certain zip codes, if you find a leader that's going to run the school system, if he does too much to bring those zip codes up or fights for what it takes for it to for the change and make them make all the zip codes look good that person is more apt to get fired than they are to keep the job for a long period of time it's amazing how those difficulties come up and usually that that person that's going a little bit beyond will be that first one or that one that they had that's uh, may well probably a black superintendent, and I've seen this happen several times around here. They come in, they're doing a good job, and they're making positive changes, and they get politically run out. It's amazing how consistently that works, even in other parts of the country, because I have uh, a lot of relatives that have that have been superintendents of schools. And when they try to do very good things that make a big difference, they get run out of that business. And you put someone else in who's not going to do a good job. That's frustrating. And that's, that's again, another step that we have to make that you never saw. It's going to be a step. You know, you thought we got past that. But that was left. You didn't address it individually. And it's amazing, every little thing has to be addressed. Otherwise, it means that it doesn't have to change. That's one of my frustrations. I just wanted to follow up uh, on that question or pick it back like we felt, that question, how has my community changed? It, uh, it brings out uh, painful thoughts when I go back to my community, which is uh, it's only 45 miles from where I live at today. And, uh, in Mississippi, a little town called Pickens, Mississippi, 45 miles up the road from Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, still have family there, uh, but to answer the question, how has it changed? I'm gonna be bluntly. The only thing that has changed in my community is that the signs have come down. When I say the signs, I'm talking about the signs that said colored or white. When I go home to visit my family in my community, I go back in time. I really go back into the 60s. Our first guest just mentioned there that you have to look at those zip codes. That's one of those zip codes, those pockets that are outside the major metropolitan cities and stuff like that. And I've always said that and recognized that, you know, uh, when I come home and go and leave to visit my family, I'll always tell my friends, you know, when I go home, I take on a different personality because nothing has changed other than the signs have come down, you know. We still live across the track. The white folks live on the other side of the track. And when I go in, I make sure that I don't do anything that will upset the community because people of color have to deal with what I started while I was there. So I respect that environment when I go home. But it's painful. I watch what I say and what I do. And I just wanted to share that because we still have pockets like that. 
in American society, especially in the small country towns of Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. Those are some things we don't talk about. So it really hadn't changed that much. And I think uh, when it comes to change, Courtney, you talked about, you know, the conversation we do have with your children. I don't think we're really going to see change, you know. And we talked about systemic racism. When you say systemic, systemic, that's going to be around for a while. I mean, look at what's going on in the country today. I don't really think we're going to see any changes since we're talking about generational changes until your children, that generation, get in and change those policies. Because when we talk about systemic, we're talking about policies, rules, regulations. What we're dealing with today is attitudinal. It takes a long time to change a culture. And so the only thing we can do, I think, up until that point, until your generation take over, Courtney, uh, is to educate and educate and share our experiences like we're doing today. Again, I'm going to stop there because I will go on and on. Okay, uh, back over to you, Donnell. Well, actually, you know, uh, we're going to let Teresa have a, a, a share her perspective on this, and then I'm going to say something. Don't be trying to run our <laughs> podcast, man. Okay. <laughs> Well, to piggyback off of what Willie was saying, I'm actually from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is one of the most segregated cities in the United States. So based on your race is where you live, where you go to school, things like that, unless you go to a magnet school where um, you have to take a test to get into a school that isn't your neighborhood school. So the zip code that is kind of famous in Milwaukee is 53206, which is the most incarcerated zip code of black males um, in the United States. In Wisconsin, they come from this one zip code. So I think things really haven't changed. I mean, when I was growing up, I was taught how to make white people comfortable around me, how to grab a bag in a store so that you weren't accused of stealing, not walk towards certain people if you think that they might think that you're trying to rob them as they're trying to get in their car. Just things so you could get through life so that you wouldn't have adverse experiences with people that didn't look like you. And I feel like, like Willie was saying, even though the signs have come down, and I, where I'm from, they, the signs were never up but there's still barriers to progress. There's still barriers to attain a certain level of equality. Um, even though the laws call for equality for all, there's still barriers, systemic barriers in our society that are causing people to not be able to get to different points in their lives where they can move out of a certain zip code, where they can progress. Um, like Mr. McLean was saying, educational systems are built now to the point where someone comes in and tries to make progress, they're pushed out because Change is hard, but cultural change is even harder. I don't think it will change anytime soon. I don't think it has changed much except for outright blatant racism. Now it's more systemic, more institutionalized than it, it's not the law anymore is what I'm trying to say. You know, I thank you, Teresa. Uh, I, I was just thinking, you know, uh, Uncle Lester had mentioned uh, the education piece, and Willie, you, you mentioned your part as, as far as location and, and all that, and, and then, Teresa, what you just said, you know, growing up where the signs weren't up, you know, the colored-only signs weren't up and, and white-only signs weren't up and all that, but yet and still you understand that there are certain places that you're going to still feel uncomfortable in going. I think everybody here on this, this particular panel right now, I think everybody has a degree, if I'm not mistaken. I'm just curious because it's almost like, well, what can you do? I mean, I have a degree. Uh, I, I served in the military for 24 years. I work for the federal government now. Uh, I, I told a story a, a few podcasts ago about the time I got pulled over by the police in my neighborhood where I live now. That guy recognized what I had on, I, I, my, my old Navy uh working uniform, I wear the, the pants on the weekends, the cut grass and all that stuff. Well, anyway, uh, he pulled me over because my taillight wasn't working. One of my taillights wasn't working. And when he pulled me over, I said, well, hmm, I said, let me get out. I said, I just probably got water in the in the lens. And I started to get out the car. He says, no, no, don't, don't, don't do that. And I'm like, well, okay, okay, no problem. And then he notices my pants. And he says, did you serve in the military? I said, well, well, yeah, yeah, I served. I, I said, I'm retired Navy. He said, 25 years? I said, no, 24 years. We have this conversation about me being in the Navy. 
And then uh, I went on further and I, I joked that I said, well, the Navy didn't want to hire me, so now I work for the Army. You know, I, I cracked that joke. And uh, he asked me, did I have anything in the car? I said, no, no, I don't have anything in the car. Gave him my license and proof of insurance. And he goes and he runs me, and I'm waiting. You know, I wait on it. He gets back to my car, and he says, "Well, okay, you can look at your you can look at your your light now." So I get out of my out of my car, and as soon as I shut the door and turn to go to the back of the car, he asks me, "says Do you mind if I frisk you?" And I'm like, I pause and I looked at him. And I'm like, "Man, we just had this conversation. <laughs> you know, I'm retired Navy." You know, I work for the federal government. Now, granted, he couldn't see my degree, but I, I would like to think that I, I speak pretty decent English. My 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 thing was, and 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 the fact, you know, the neighborhood that I live in is a nice neighborhood. You know, my house cost over two hundred thousand dollars, and you know, I wasn't bumping my music or anything like that. But you know, the first thing I was thinking. You know, and I didn't want to think it, but I couldn't help but think. And I'm like, man, if if I was a white guy, I wonder if this happens to me if I'm white. And then I'm like looking at it like, well, maybe, maybe because he's a police officer, because my father's a police officer, maybe he's just being careful because policemen are getting killed too. So maybe he he does that with everybody. Uh, but I but I asked this, but I said all that to to, to say this. It's like, it's almost like uh, an, an uphill battle still. It doesn't matter if you're educated. It doesn't matter if you carry yourself a certain way. Uh, it's almost like, it seems like we're going backwards in a way. You know, I mean, here we are, it's 2021. People are still getting uncomfortable about some of the things that we talk about. And, and again, I always say it's about educating, you know, I'm not going to say that discrimination doesn't exist. I wouldn't have a job without it. Uh, at least I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing uh, if it, you know, if it didn't. I wish it didn't, but it does. You know, uh, my perspective, you know, just like everybody else, I guess really the question I'm asking is, you know, even with all the education and all that we do, uh, does that really make, you know, is it really making a difference? I mean, like Uncle Lester, you 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 got your degree from UT, correct? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, having that degree, having, you know, and, and being who you are, doing what you did, uh, being the first African-American to letter there at, at the University of Tennessee, has that made your life better? Has it made it worse? But it gives me the opportunity to, to enter doors. You know, it's kind of like you said that uh, once you showed your credentials, you got the chance to go back and check your tail light, but that didn't mean that you didn't get searched. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Well, well, it gave me. I have uh, more credentials than some than many other people do, and I, you know, so those are there are advantages there with the credentials, but that doesn't mean that they're not the they're that you don't deal with silent obstacles that you have to overcome even after that. But it is, you know, it does give an advantage for people to, to be able to figure out who you are and, 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 and know you and identify. So that part, it gives you an advantage, but it doesn't take away the system that's in place. I'd like to follow up with that. I agree with Mr. McCain. Uh, Having a, a degree does give you an advantage, you know, gets you in the door. Also, though, based on my experience and some things I've heard in the past, I heard a conversation uh, once, a few times, we were talking about Barack Obama, and we were talking about, you know, just, you know, the state of the world today, the politics, a whole bunch of other stuff. And they were talking about, but he's the president of the United States, and, and he went, I think, to Harvard. Yeah, he went to Harvard. He has this degree. And this old black man said that, yeah, he has a degree. However, you need to understand the way he's seen from the other side is that he's just another N-word person with a degree. That's it. So at the end of the day, 
I'm still a black man. It doesn't matter how many degrees I have or what school I went to. And it goes back to what I said earlier. Uh, it's going to take a generation to make changes to systemic racism uh, based on my experience and what I've seen. Also, Donnell, you just you know you described your your experience there and shared that. And while you was talking, I couldn't help but think about, okay, well, what is that cop's perspective? Why is that cop treating you differently based on your thought process? Why am I being treated different as a black man? Well, I'm thinking, well, what is that cop thinking? Is he as a white man protecting himself based on I'm going to say stereotypes about the black man based on his socialization process. So does that make him right or wrong? No. You know, we have this inner thing inside us that goes back from the beginning of time where we'll talk to do whatever necessary to protect ourselves. So given that thought process, we both have our perspectives. We both have our socialization process. We're no different than computers. We're programmed. So throughout my lifetime, we're talking about generations, I was programmed by key events that happened in my life, just like you and that cop. So now we bring that together. So who's right? That's where the education piece came. Now, I'm going to say neither one of us are right. We have our perspectives, and we have to navigate through our society. And how do we navigate and coexist through that society having those different perspectives? So, again, this is going to be long-term. I don't think I'm going to see any really, really equitable, positive changes where I can walk in a door in a store and not worry about being treated different or somebody following me, uh, feel like I'm being watched. That's going, I'm going to be gone if that time ever comes. I'm a firm believer that there's always going to be discrimination to this world is gone. As long as there are differences, as long as there are differences, whether it be race, color, religion, national origin, we're different. Somebody's going to think they're better because of those differences, period. So I don't think discrimination is going to ever go away. And if I'm around here another 100 years, I'm going to have a job as an EEO manager or especially for the next 100 years, because of those differences. So again, it goes back to education. However, I do think the upcoming generation, that I'm going to say the Gen Z, 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 because it's going to be long after me, uh, those are going to be the one that's going to be able to coexist and not have the issues we are dealing with today. And I don't want to come across as an angry black man. I'm just sharing my experiences because I think it's important that you understand that there are people like me and Mr. McCain who have those experiences. But when we see stuff, experience stuff, it brings those experiences back to life. Just like just like a lady who has been, and forgive me for saying this, if it don't come out right, that, that's been sexual harassed or sexual assault. It don't take much to bring those, those, those painful experiences back. And the same thing with us. And I think it's important that people out in the audience or whoever listen to this podcast understand that you have people that look like Mr. Day, that's from the same generation as Mr. Day, and I'm sure probably had the same experiences or experienced the same things, uh, depending on where they were geographically when those things were happening, that harbor these things in the back of their mind. We talk about unconscious bias. I got that unconscious stuff there, too. I manage it well, uh, and that's why I do what I do today. But it's very important that we understand that we're, we're engaging people in the workplace. And I oftentimes think that's something that's missed. And I often been, I've been called, I mentioned that word angry black man, because I've been, uh, I've been called that a couple of times when we had these type discussions. And I had to remind the people, no, I'm speaking with passion. I'm speaking from experience. I'm speaking from pain. I want you to feel, understand. And that's why when I gave that speech, uh, for Black History Month many, many years ago, and I actually used the N-word because I wanted people to feel the impact of that word. And I really didn't use it in a negative way. I just shared an experience when I was called that word and how it made me feel as a nine-year-old kid. And people were not prepared for that, and I was escorted out. We need to, again, educate, 
and get out of our comfort zone because, again, that's the only way we grow. And I'm not going to try to take over your podcast, so back over to Courtney. (laughs) (laughs) You are taking over because it's Teresa's turn. See? You're fine. Well, yeah. Well, in terms of my degree, I think that it definitely helped me get to where I am today. But at the same time, it exposed me to parts of society that I didn't know existed, like systematic racism, unconscious bias, but how it feels to be the only person in the room, um, how people can talk to you differently, but they try to say it's you being too sensitive or people not understanding how it feels to be you or not trying to put themselves in your shoes when you are different, especially as an engineer. I find that I interact with a lot of people that aren't from my generation because I feel like when I'm interacting with people from my generation, I don't feel the same types of pushback, same types of comments that I get from people that are older. And I think that because of that, I sometimes wish I didn't try to attain a master's degree. I didn't try to go all the way because I sometimes feel like I chose the wrong path because I'm around people who sometimes don't believe I should be there or they think I got there because of something that I didn't attain through my own doing. So I think having a degree makes it more difficult. I think I'm more cognizant of the parts of society that are like the top levels of systematic racism. I've started to see where that feeling actually is. And it's a hard thing to come to realize that because of the color of my skin, I probably can only attain a certain level. And especially in an organization where people don't look like me or where diversity isn't always a priority. So I think it's difficult, but I mean, I'm proud of where I am. I'm proud of who I am, but I think it exposed me to things that I didn't think would happen. I thought that attaining a degree would help me be able to bring with other people up when it turned out that isn't always the case. Thanks, Teresa. And Willie and Lester for sharing all of those experiences. I think that these are the experiences that a lot of people don't get to hear because maybe you know, they don't live in a diverse area. They don't uh, have a lot of experience with diversity and don't get to see or have never experienced or maybe never even known anybody or anyone who has had these experiences. So that is why um, these perspectives can be so powerful because this podcast can be far reaching and uh, I guess you never know who's going to listen to it. And your experiences matter, and they shape who you are and how we interact in the workplace. And and it leads me to another question that I'm curious. Does anybody have any stories on how they've been able to challenge stereotypes and promote inclusion? I I think perhaps just our existence and involvement in various things will is doing just that, you know, where we're changing stereotypes. I know in my in my time zone um, the job opportunities or everything that you did you were usually the uh, first African American to have that opportunity. So I guess you're always changing something if that's who you are, and that's the time period that you fall into. I remember <laughs> at one point I told told someone I didn't want to be the first African-American doing anything else ever again. (laughs) (laughs) And you have to be an African-American doing the first thing, being the first one doing something, at least one time, understand that and for it to really be funny. (laughs) Because it is not, uh, it's not an an easy task. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And I, I forgot where I was going after I thought about that because that was that's that's an experience. You know, every time you have that experience, you think, "My God, there's so much to to overcome." And when you you know, even when you do extremely well, much better than anyone ever thought, you still get the kick down. It's not that great, or it's not. I mean, you know, it's, you still belittled uh, quite a bit, and that's. That can be quite disheartening. Yeah. Your, your comment, Mr. McCain, about being the first African American to do this or the first African American to do that. Mm-hmm. When I hear that, I, I think about the dominant culture. I have never, never, ever heard anybody say he's the first white man to do this. 
Well, he's the first white woman to do that. And this is the first, it only applies when it comes to pretty much African-American and other people of color. And I share that when people ask me, well, why don't we have a white history month or a white history day? Man, this is your history. Every day is your white history day. And then I would share what you just said. Have you ever heard of anybody saying the first white this, the first white that? So your history is every day. Thank you for sharing that. And here I go again. <laughs> but anyway, I think, the, I think the question has something to do with challenging stereotypes. Let me get back to the script because I know Dawn there is going to say something. Here you go again trying to take over our podcast. I, what I do, I, uh, I, I've been there. I'm saying that because I've been there. I spent 30 years in the, in the Army, uh, you know, to go back on Darnell's service. So, and I was usually, you know, the only black person. Cause I, I, uh, I came from Mississippi, again, working in cotton fields and soybean fields. And so I had a work ethic. And so when I went in the military, I worked hard. So I got promoted fast. And I was always the youngest sergeant, the youngest sergeant first class, the youngest first sergeant, the youngest sergeant major, whatever the case may be, and the only black in that group. Mm-hmm. And it was challenging. So when you when you made those comments, all I could do is do flashbacks on that and how I was treated uh, because of that and because of my youth and all of those areas. But back to confront stereotypes, basically what I do, I confront them head on, not in an aggressive or negative way, I try to turn it into a teaching moment, and I will ask the person about that stereotype. I'll ask them to explain themselves. You know, again, going back to socialization process, they will talk this stuff. You know, and I have to explain why they feel the way they feel, and then then I will try to provide some wise feedback about facts. And, and also I try to include those individuals, let them, and, 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 and explain to them, share with them, why that comment they made made me feel. I use feeling words. People can deal with feeling words. This is why, you know, how you made me feel when you made that comment. And then explain the history behind that. It's all about, you know, education. You know, I don't uh, get aggressive with individuals when it comes to those stereotypes. I just want to educate them about, you know, what that stereotype means, how it affects people. Back to you, Darnell. Here I go again. So go ahead and give uh, your your perspective on on that as well, and uh, then we'll I'll I'll give a little summarization and, and let Courtney end in a minute. But please, Teresa, go ahead and give us your your thoughts. Well, I think how I confront stereotypes or encourage inclusion is really more passive. I don't like confrontation at all. So if I hear comments, usually I shut down. I I don't like to confront things because sometimes when you confront it, I feel like the other person doesn't necessarily understand where I'm coming from and we're just, we're not connecting when it comes to talking about how a comment was offensive to me or why something could be offensive to somebody else. So I really try to um, actually use our district diversity inclusion committee to really promote inclusion by through recruitment. I like to um, also speak about my experiences through podcasts like this. I think it's powerful to um, kind of put a story to a face to be more understanding, to be able to have that connection where you can appreciate differences and it doesn't become a negative thing. It can become a positive thing because diversity is positive. Diversity of thought is positive. Diversity of race, diversity of gender, all those things are positive things. So I, I'm much more passive in how I promote inclusion. I try to be as accommodating as possible. I, I try not to perpetuate stereotypes. I try not to make people uncomfortable around me. Um, I think by doing those things is how I promote inclusion. Um, just trying to put myself out there, trying to things, volunteer for things that I might not want to do, but I know it could be impactful and powerful. Uh, well, one of the things that I've heard uh, a lot in this podcast, and actually in, in other podcasts as well, uh, and in some of the trainings that, that I give, uh, that word uncomfortable, you know, and to get to a positive end, Guess what? You know, you're going to have to experience some uncomfortable times. Inclusion, uh, race relations, however you want to call it or or, or whatever, is always going to be uncomfortable. Even, you know, when somebody is asking the question, because, you know, I've had my share conversations with uh, with both black, white, whatever, 
about different things. And what I have found is that everybody's uncomfortable. And I, I want to tell you that's okay to be uncomfortable. You know, it's like going to the doctor. You're uncomfortable, you know, while you're at the doctor, but you start getting these answers and, and then you, you can start getting a better path to, 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 to a healthier lifestyle. So with that being said, you know, I think these, these conversations that we have, you know, I, I think you start finding out who your allies are. I, I think you find out that there are more allies out there than, than you actually know. But, you know, a lot of people are just quiet and they don't say anything. Like when, when they hear something uh, and, and they don't agree with it or whatever, that's nice that they may come to me or to Willie or Teresa or Uncle Lester and they say, you know, I didn't like what they said, but it would have been so much more powerful if they said, hey, look, me as a white person or me as a man, I, I really feel uncomfortable when you said this or when you said that about women or, or, whatever, or whenever you said that about somebody who uh, is, is, is a lesbian or whatever. You know, like you said at the beginning of this, Willie, you know, a lot of it's attitudinal. It really is. You know, we do things that we do things out of comfort. I, I see it all the time, you know, when at lunchtime, when you see people go to eat lunch, it's almost like you see, you see things broke up where, you know, the black people are sitting at their table and the white people are sitting at their table or whatever, you know, whatever uh, group it is. And at the end of the day, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap it up myself, at the end of the day, it really comes down to we need to learn about one another. You know, it's not just a matter of black history. One of the things that I tell people all the time, there are certain things that we've gotten to, uh, and, you know, as, as far as black people are concerned, we did not get there by, we, we did not get to it by ourselves, okay? Somebody who doesn't look like me had to have some input into it. You know, so any any month for that matter, I don't care if it's uh, Asian or, or, or whatever, nobody gets there alone. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we are all stronger together, you know, and, then, and that's one of the things that I try to preach is, is that, hey, you know, if we do this together, we're going to be so much better for it. Before I, I hand it over to Court, I just want to say, hey, uh, those uh, who are experiencing things that are bringing you down or, or whatever, please take advantage of your uh, your EAP, uh, uh, take advantage of your peer supporters or the EEO office, uh, but whatever you do, do not suffer in silence, do not just try to tough it out, but please uh, go to somebody. Uh, uh, Lester, Willie, uh, Teresa, I want to thank you all for, uh, for participating today. You know, Willie, even though you got a, long, a little long-winded, I, I still appreciate you, man. <laughs> well, well thank, you, thank you too, Pastor. <laughs> I said it. I said it. It's out of love, my brother. It's out of love. I said well, thank you again. Thank you too, Pastor. Thank you preaching. Well, well, we'll take up a collection shortly. <laughs> Courtney? <laughs> Thanks, Janelle. I think that putting ourselves in uncomfortable situations is, is how we grow as people. And I think the more that we put ourselves in uncomfortable situations, you know, learn more about people uh, around us, whether it's our coworkers or uh, different folks uh, in our communities or our neighbors, um, we'll become more compassionate and understanding and uh, inclusive. And speaking of inclusion, I would just want to ask one more question before we close it out. So when it comes to inclusion, how do we foster an environment where people who come from different backgrounds can value each other's ideas? I guess it's okay to be curious and be sincere and um, communicate with people sincerely and um, in a way that everyone is willing to communicate if you give them an opportunity to drop their guard and, and, and talk and, and, and communicate. I think that's a, that's a very human thing. And um, I think all human beings like to do that if they 
feel comfortable. If you make them comfortable enough, it's there in most most cases. I invite them to dance. Just invite them to dance. There's a saying out there that says diversity is inviting people to the party. Inclusion is inviting them to dance. So, and it goes it goes beyond the just inclusion piece with me. It goes to the belonging piece. I want them to belong and feel like they belong to my team. So that's how I foster it. I, I just invite them to dance. I let them know that you are part of this team. You are part of my family. Your input matters. I'm going to listen to you and make them feel comfortable. And again, I'm going to be sure invite them to dance. Well, I agree with all those perspectives. And I think that also as people of color, we have to be willing to share our stories. We have to be willing to answer those tough questions and um, have be approachable for people that want to be a sounding board off of an idea they had or a question they had or something they're curious about. I think sometimes um, we focus on the negatives of inclusion that can come, the pushback that can come, the barriers that exist, but we don't talk about how, um, like you said, education is it's powerful and we have to be willing to educate. We have to be willing to open ourselves up. We have to be willing to talk about these tough things, these tough interactions with police officers, these childhood stories from segregation and integration and all these powerful, powerful but painful things. And I think the more people are open, the more project inclusion sessions we have, the more opportunities people have to ask questions and be curious, I think is great progress towards inclusion. Thank you, Teresa. Again, I want to thank you, uh, Teresa, Mr. Willie Day, Mr. Uh, Lester McLean, uh, my uncle, my 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 road dog. <laughs> 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 uh, hey, I love you, and and and, and tell Aunt Virginia I appreciate her hooking up the computer for you and all that. I wanted to, I wanted to give her a shout out as well. But I appreciate you all uh, participating in this. And Courtney, I want to thank you for always uh, involving me in this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Janelle. And thank you, Lester and Willie and Teresa, for joining us today for this edition of Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insight. And to our listeners, we want to hear from you. What topics are important to you and people you are interested in hearing from? Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the core and revolutionize civil works together.